Everything about this moment in history seems uniquely designed to challenge our mental health. We are suffering, we need answers, and we need help. That's why I'm so thrilled to be partnering with Sound Mind Live and Consequence of Sound to host their new podcast series, Going There. I'm Dr. Mike Friedman, clinical psychologist and life coach. With Going There, I will talk with musicians who struggle with their mental health, just like us. After all, mental illness affects us all. And the same artists who have stepped up to share their wonderful work with us are now sharing the intimate details of their journey in living with mental illness. We are going to ask the tough questions, and we're going to have the difficult conversations, all so that we can learn from each other. But more importantly, to shine a light on the difficult topic of mental illness so that we can all come out of the darkness and get the care we need. So we hope you join us on this journey. Going there, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unterstall. And I'm Mike Snoonian, and I need to return some videotapes. <laughs> <sighs> well, you better hurry, because apparently it takes all day long mm-hmm. and all night long to return videotapes. <laughs> um, and we are beginning a new theme this month, and it's one that I have been itching to talk about since maybe before I started podcasting at all. We are talking about narcissism for April. Yay! Yay, narcissism! (laughs) Just every time. I think that's just now our new standard. Uh And and we are kicking off our narcissism month with, no, not a month of talking about narcissism. We don't all get to be narcissists for April. (laughs) We are kicking off this theme with uh, American Psycho. Woo! So excited to talk about this movie. But before we do... Let's give a brief synopsis in case you haven't seen it or it's been a while. So here is your spoiler warning. (laughs) The year is 1987 and Patrick Bateman is a Wall Street douchebag in his late 20s. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) It is true. Yes. Very true. (laughs) You might as well get it out of the way right now. In the daytime, his life revolves around expensive everything, competitive business card design, friends that he hates, treating women like garbage, and cocaine. (laughs) He is, you guessed it, a big old narcissist. Yep. (laughs) At night, he is overcome with bloodlust and murders just about anyone who even slightly pisses him off, from women he meets on the street, sex workers, and models to unhoused people. 
He becomes enraged after a coworker named Paul Allen lightly insults him and lands a coveted reservation at trendy restaurant Dorja. Plotting revenge, Bateman invites Paul to dinner. In an iconic scene, he spreads out newspapers, dons a raincoat, and rhapsodizes over Huey Lewis, readying an axe behind a drunk Paul's back. He murders his co-worker while Hip to be Square plays loudly enough to drown out the screams. I feel like I'm doing movie trailer voice tonight. And right. I, yeah, I don't, in I, a world. I don't in know a why. World. <laughs> I like it. I should do it I in the it in the bait. <laughs> what is the Bateman voice? It's like, oh, hip, hip, oh, hip to be square. Hip to be square. It does like yeah. a weird Probably like. Struggling to he does like a, subvert that uh, Welsh accent. Yeah. Yep. Uh, hey, really I'm Patrick Bateman, and I uh, have a a, a a little penis. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I, I do like... want to say the the last two movies I've recorded on are this and the guest starring Dan Stevens. Oh dear. Oh so, yeah, body. That's a lot of up. horror hotness. That is kind of like. <laughs> oh, I mean, I even just yeah. don't measure up. I feel <laughs> like garbage. What looking at at Christian Bale. So you know, I get mm -hmm. it. Uh, <clears throat> Paul's disappearance. <laughs> Paul's disappearance attracts the attention of a detective played by my favorite hottie, Willem Dafoe. <laughs> <laughs> Love some Dafoe. Okay. <laughs> Who seems suspicious of Bateman. Meanwhile, he has a threesome with two sex workers and fully directs the scene, telling them what to do, how to position themselves, and even what names he wants them to respond to, all for the camera. He ends the evening by assaulting them both, which we thankfully do not have to watch. It's almost like we should be letting more women direct movies. Hmm. Stay tuned for some thoughts I have on that later. <laughs> After endlessly critiquing her appearance, Patrick asks out his secretary, Jean. Back at his place, he's about to murder her with a nail gun when Patrick's fiance, Evelyn, calls and leaves a gushing message. Awkward! <laughs> Bateman allows her to leave, and she unwittingly escapes with her life. Patrick bribes Christy, one of the sex workers he assaulted, back into his clutches. Once again within his murder den, he drugs her and his friend Elizabeth, encouraging them to hook up. During another threesome, he murders Elizabeth in front of Christy. She flees but discovers the bodies of Bateman's victims, realizing that he is, in fact, a psycho killer, Kesquise, ba 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 and she better run, 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 run away. I'm, I'm sorry I'm for sorry everything. David Byrne <laughs> never apologize for saying that one of my other anymore. favorite zaddies David Byrne okay uh, he chases her down the hallway with a chainsaw wearing only tennis shoes and Elizabeth's blood and seemingly murders Christy with said chainsaw it's a whole staircase thing I don't even know how to describe it <laughs> yeah just watch the film just watch the film <laughs> this, I'm, there's no way I'm doing the just sheer mania of this film I but, know Patrick returns to Paul Allen's apartment to clean up, only to find that the place has been sanitized and is for sale. The next day, he breaks off his engagement with Evelyn, saying he doesn't care about her. Don't cry, Reese Witherspoon. You dodged a bullet, honey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, oh, popping, I'm popping Could off with imagine? the... I know. I know. <laughs> like, just run, run. Again, run, run. Ooh. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> this is my favorite line of the synopsis. After trying to feed a kitten to an ATM machine... Bateman goes on a murderous rampage that culminates in an unhinged confession to his lawyer's answering machine. The I'm sorry, I can't stop laughing at it. Uh -huh. <laughs> I can't stop. It's just so funny. It's bonkers. It's so fucking weird and stupid. Okay. <laughs> Where did he get it from? What, right. what is this? 
The next day, Patrick learns that his lawyer doesn't actually know who he is and thought the whole confession was a joke. He pleads with his lawyer that he's telling the truth, that he killed Paul Allen. But the lawyer just had lunch with Paul Allen a few days ago. Wait, what? (laughs) Back at Bateman's office, his secretary, Jean, uncovers one of his notebooks, which is filled with violent, obscene illustrations of dismembered women. Could all of Patrick's actions have been an elaborate fantasy, or is he really a murderer? Even Bateman himself can't say for certain. All we know is that, to quote Errol Morris, he is amazed without a center, and to quote some other guy, this was a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Wow. Nice. <laughs> some other guy. I've always wanted an excuse to use that quote. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I mean, it fits, too. That's um, like, because when, when he says something toward the end, and I can't remember what the exact line is, but it made that Shakespeare mm-hmm. soliloquy pop into my head. And so, because that's exactly, it's just like, his confession meant nothing or something. Yeah, I think that's what he says. This this has mm-hmm. meant nothing, which I just fucking love. And we're going to talk about yeah. that in yeah. a minute. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about it right now. Um, so let's do our feelings check. And this is where we share our first experience with the movie and how it makes us feel when we watch it. And Mike, would you care to begin? Yeah. So this was like a movie and a book that I was always aware of, but until a few years ago, never got around to like actually like watching and reading. And I know I had seen like large chunks of it, like in sections, like the Huey Lewis scene is this iconic moment in horror. Mm-hmm. It appeared on like a ton of like best of lists. And I think what happened was I actually saw American Psycho 2 first. Mm. And it's so bad that it kind of like, I'm like, eh, do I really want to? Knowing that like, this is considered like a masterpiece of horror and I should see it. And I just kept putting it off. And then when I, you know, got into grad school and began writing on horror movies and mental health for my graduate studies, then I'm like, all right, I need to actually sit down and watch this movie. And it's brilliant. Mary Heron, like, absolutely like knocks the piss out of 80s greed is good and like this capitalist yuppie culture uh and also like wall street bros and toxic masculinity um she cuts through the male bullshit and i think like it's really important to have like a woman direct this kind of movie because it does Mm -hmm. cut through a lot of the male entitlements that you would maybe not pick on maybe not like if oliver stone who was attached to this movie for a while and we don't get into like how this movie was made type of stuff in this show we do that more in a different show i record but i would encourage listeners go listen to the horror queers episode on american psycho um trace in particular does like a really good job going into like all the background of like how Leonardo DiCaprio and Oliver Stone almost made this movie together mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. after Titanic hit big. So that would be a much different movie at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, he needed to age into being the Wolf of oh, Wall Street. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> the biggest thing is what Mary Heron does is she sees the humor that runs throughout Ellis's text. It's really barely a horror movie. It's much more of a comedic satire Uh, And it's really a character study. Like, there's not a lot of plot to this movie. There's not a lot of movie in this movie. It's Mm -hmm. really, and to me, what was interesting watching it today for the show, I watched it on IMDb TV. So there's actually a lot of commercial breaks in it. And Uh 
theme like the perfect way to kind of watch it like you would have this vignette and then it would like have like 30 seconds of tide commercials then another big um <laughs> and it really felt like very appropriate for the kind of movie that this is um and it remains cool you know the book is extremely controversial yep and i think like what Mary Heron does is she takes the inner monologue that runs throughout the book and she does something that like a lot of directors who adapt Stephen King's work struggle with where so much of King's work is interior it mm -hmm. really struggles to come out on the screen she actually and the dialogue in this movie is almost word for word lifted from the book but mm -hmm. is able to like put a different spin and perspective and point of view on it so it's much more funny than it is horrific. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's really the influence now can still be seen. I think if you have if you're a fan of Hannibal, um, Brian Fuller definitely yes. lip, not lifted, but you could see the opening credit sequence at the oh yeah is definitely like Hannibal definitely lifted from that. Um, I think Dexter it, too. Oh yeah, Dexter. I would say, but even like. Mads Mikkelsen, who to me is the definitive Hannibal Lecter at this point, his mm -hmm. modus operandi where he kills people that offend him or that he feels are beneath his station are very much lifted, I would say, from like Patrick Bateman's point of view and what you see in American Psycho. So its influence can still be seen today. I wonder if we'll get into the um, controversy that the book created upon its publication in 1991 but yeah phenomenal movie and i'm really looking forward to diving into this one yeah i think the controversy is a really interesting thing to consider now especially and i have some thoughts on that mm -hmm. later as well just kind of in a post-trump mm -hmm. world not to yeah. say the for the forbidden word it's yeah. um, hard to watch this movie and not now and not have it that lens though right they yeah. say it in the movie too you yeah. know yeah, I mean, it's it's really kind of eerie how actually, mm -hmm. how well this actually uh, stands up as an accurate appraisal mm -hmm. of our culture. Like that 80s greed is good thing never really went anywhere. Yeah. Like we right. are in the, the detritus of late mm -hmm. capitalism. As usual, I can't remember when exactly I first saw the film, uh, but I, I know that I watched the movie and then I read the book and then I watched the movie again. And this was all happening sometime between, I would guess, 2006 and 2009, because it feels like tail end of or just after college to me. I didn't revisit it again until just now for this show. I, I remember liking it, but maybe like I remember just being more like, this is interesting, not like something that really resonated with me on a personal level. And I think that um at this point in my life i find it much more interesting like mike said as a character study and as something that is social satire i can definitely understand where some of the criticism comes from because i think it is a really really hard line to ride of a satire dark horror comedy about brutalizing women at the hands of this like ultra toxic male like white male figure like kill and it's just like i can really see it being read as a glorification of these things but that in my opinion like completely misses the point which is that this is a truly truly pathetic character and i just find it very fascinating and like you like we were saying like i i 
I really enjoyed this viewing of it. It was so funny to me. Like I was laughing my ass off and I don't remember. I mean, I remember obviously like recognizing that it was satirical, but I don't remember finding it as funny as I do now. And I don't know if that is just because I have become the Joker or what is happening, but I, oh, it cracked me up and, and, I, and the aesthetics of it, the score by John Cale, it's just, you know, really, really a commitment to a period piece. Like right now and in the last, I'd say in the last five years, we've had all this like, obsession with the 80s and recreating the 80s and stuff and like this really nails it yeah. like the aesthetics and the costuming and every oh my god it's yeah. just so well made this is the side of, like i was when i was thinking of this like this is a side of 80s nostalgia that you don't often see mm -hmm. like if this, totally. but this is very like we talk like there's a podcast i love that's like everything 80s but it's like elf and transformers and new coke and you know, like the Thriller album, but this was very much like this kind of deregulation, read is good, everyone out for themselves, really yuppified culture is every bit part of the 80s and probably the most lasting part of the 80s mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it's very, like you were saying, Laura, it still holds up and it feels very familiar, mm -hmm. you know, for feeling as dated as it, as it is, you know. I also do not remember the first time I watched this movie, but I remember reading the book and I was reading it actually on a church trip and <laughs> was in the church van and getting to a particular part that is so disturbing. I'm not even going to talk about it, but I was just like, oh, I have to put this away <laughs> in case anybody like reads it over my shoulder. I really hope that it, you were like reading it in a slipcase of a Bible, but like if they open it up, that's what was it like with the carve it out inside, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. I was not, but that would have been the perfect way to get away with it. Like inside my <laughs> choir folder, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it is the most disturbing book I think I've ever read. Well, and I don't, I don't know. Like I was in an edgelord phase of reading, you know? Yeah. And so I like, I just was like, oh, we this all sounds were. fucked up. Right. We yeah. some Chuck Palahniuk and then that's Freddy's another. Well, this, yeah, <laughs> this and and i think fight club are really good one two punch of like this specific period and yeah yep. and that's one of the other ones i read that and then i i think i drew the line at naked lunch i think i got a little ways into it and i was like mm -hmm. eh, this is not for me anyways yeah. but i don't remember the first time i watched this movie but I love it. Like, I fucking love this movie. I think you're right. I think, like, I've got a lot of thoughts about it being directed by a woman because I think she really is aware of how harmful watching some of this stuff would be and how exploitative it is. And, like, I think about the scene where he's walking down the street with the woman and then it just immediately cuts to him washing bloody sheets. Mm -hmm. We don't have to see him doing anything mm -hmm. terrible. The implication is there and that's all we need. And that's, like, the kind of, like, awareness I think she brings to this role. I think yeah. it's also, like, when I think about some of the controversy of this book, I think it's so clearly a satire. Like there's such a clear differentiation I feel between the filmmaker and the character. Like I do not feel like the film is endorsing anything he does. Right. I think it makes it very clear that it's not and that he's a pathetic mm -hmm. piece of right. shit. Right. Like, yeah. Like, just completely pathetic, yeah. you know? And, and I can see that like uh, somebody who is not so smart might watch this and be like, he looks really good with his shirt off. And that's, you know, like right. I, I find him charming or something, but it's, these are the same people that have like a Scarface poster. And, and I think if you, if you contrast it to like 
Fight Club, this does so much be uh, a better of a job, like making it not cool mm -hmm. what he does, you know, mm -hmm. like I, I, it's like he has a veneer of coolness and Fight Club really was like, actually, this guy's pretty twisted mm -hmm. right. and he's pretty cool. And it's like, let's take down capitalism. Right. And I, some of those ideas I think are valid. Like, you know, the system right. is bad and capitalism sucks and all this kind of shit, but it's like just two totally, I think this one has aged a lot better. I mean, when, I think so too. when your main character slow walks off at the end of the movie to the Pixies, where's my, where's my mind? <laughs> there's no way that you're not going to be cool. It's much, right. much less cool when your main character is like, I think Susudio is Phil Collins' best song. Right. You know, like, <laughs> I love like that drenched so in sweat, you know? Yeah. 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 Holding up the Phil Collins CD yeah. just cracked me the fuck up. Right. Yes. What's, what's interesting is when Ellis wrote the first draft of the novel, the violence wasn't in it. And Ellis is really, talk, he talked about how like, he very much saw himself in some ways as Patrick Bateman, like this outside, but from an outsider perspective, like looking in at like 80s over commercialization and and basically this materialism that was emerging. Like he was very much running with that crew. And mm -hmm. he was in a very specific mindset when he kind of wrote this. But the next draft of the book, it included the narcissism in that first draft and that kind of like mm -hmm. not being aware of himself. And then he was like, I think we need to go hyper violent with it. And it being, I didn't really say why in this interview I read, but be kind of interesting to kind of parse out why he felt the need to go. And to be really honest, like Brett Easton Ellis is like really an insufferable prick, yeah. but he is a yeah. very talented prick. Mm -hmm. So Yes. Well, and that's the, the I'm going to link an article I think that I found um, kind of saying how I feel like Mary Heron really refined this you know because yeah. one of my criticisms of the book is it would like vacillate wildly between this like ultra like super disturbing sexual violence and this fucking hilarious scenes about business cards and yeah. like Whitney Houston and mm. I feel like Mary Heron just does such a good job of weaving that together yeah. and making it like a connected thing mm -hmm. which is why we chose it for narcissism and that's the other reaction I have to this movie is um and I, I posted this the other day like when I first started podcasting when I first started like really kind of analyzing horror in a public way I knew that I was going to get to Rose Matter at some point and I knew that I would get to this one because um it's just so clearly about narcissism to me like my dad was a narcissist is a narcissist like I've got like a couple of key narcissists in my life and so that's part of why I love this movie so much because she knocks the piss out of the 80s but she also knocks the piss out of him she's like he is a small little man yeah. and yes he is super like he hurts a lot of people but it's because he is flawed which mm -hmm. is just so different than everything that I always grew up seeing like and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, when we get to narcissism. But, like, mm -hmm. it just... But it was so funny. Like, I fucking loved watching it last night. And every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, why don't I watch this movie all the time? Um, yeah. Because it's just so fun. It's like restaurant porn, you know? And, like, huh. Mm -hmm. But then afterwards, it, like, it kind of wheedles in. And I'm like, oh. And I start thinking about some of, like, the the people and some of the things that it reminds me of. And so it's, you know, I'm excited to unpack it, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So speaking of, <laughs> speaking of, yes, uh, let's talk about our mental health topic for the month. And that is narcissism. Hooray. Hey. Hooray for Yay. us. We're talking about narcissism. Aren't we cool? <laughs> I'm sorry. Tell That's... us how great we are. 
<laughs> right. Don't you want to know? Please leave dying? a rate, rate and review on yes. iTunes. Five star <laughs> reviews. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no, I just got out of my head about that. <laughs> so, Mike, I feel like narcissism is something that's really kind of in the zeitgeist right now. Mm -hmm. But could you tell us sure. what it is and what it looks like? Sure. So let's start with like a really brief definition of what personality disorders are. Um, and it's a general like broad based definition. They tend to be defined as ways of thinking and behaving that veer far from one's own cultural and immediate expectations. Uh, and they do it in a way that like causes the person to stand out in negative ways to experience isolation from others and to cause like this abundance of like distress or a loss in functioning over extended periods of time. And one phrase I just want to emphasize there is like one's own cultural expectations. So it's, you know, it's really like what's expected of you within your own general culture or environment or kind of like surroundings, basically. Like if you take a person who is like new to your area, it has like a different set of values and norms and drop them into a new area. Like if they act differently and stand out in such a way, that does not mean they have a personality disorder. It means that there's just, they're not acclimated to the culture. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just wanted a good, to really, really I'm glad you clarified that. that. Yes. <laughs> right. So, um, okay. So there are three clusters of personality disorders and we covered one of them last month. Uh, cluster A personality disorders are defined as like odd or eccentric personality disorders. The main traits and commonalities of these illnesses is they're categorized by like social awkwardness and a tendency to withdraw from social situations. And this cluster in includes like paranoid, schizoid, uh, and schizotypal personality disorders. Like schizophrenia is a type as a cluster A personality disorder. Um, cluster B, which is what we're going to be covering this month, they're ones that kind of take erraticism and emotional distress into account. A person with a cl cluster B disorder, they struggle to regulate their emotions and they may have poor impulse control. They will often exploit others, and that can be physically, emotionally, sexually, or financially for their own gain. They often lack empathy, and they may struggle to relate well with others. They tend to be very manipulative in their behaviors and in their thoughts. Um, and this cluster includes things like borderline personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and what we're going to be discussing this month, uh, narcissism or narcissistic personality disorder. Cluster C, they're marked by individuals with levels of high levels of anxiety, and they tend to be like the fearful level. They are often referred to as like the fearful cluster. People that have these often have higher levels of social, social inhibition, and they can be hypersensitive to criticism. They tend to have like more avoidant personalities and fear rejection and humiliation. Um, and you'll see things like avoidant, dependent, and obsessive compulsive personality disorders like kind of fitting in under this umbrella. So what are the traits of narcissistic personality disorder? Number one is, is that there's this exaggerated sense of self-importance. Like everything is all about them. Everything about them they see is like the best, is the top of the line, as the gold standard. And again, like not to get too political, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But think about <laughs> how many times when you hear would hear Donald Trump speak. Like everything is like just a couple weeks ago because he can't tweet anymore because he's such a 
asshole um he released <laughs> so that super pathetic like that really pathetic statement it's like when you're getting that quote-unquote beautiful shot like who describes the fucking shot in the arm is beautiful right right um mm -hmm. but, bizarre man you know we're gonna have like the cleanest water we're gonna have the most beautiful everything like everything is like top shelf best you know and meanwhile this dude eats like well done steaks covered in ketchup right i mean mm-hmm and just, I just, sometimes I like to savor the thought that he's not on Twitter and how much it must be killing him. And mm -hmm. like when, when he couldn't get any big names to play at his inauguration and he got like three doors yes. down, like he must've just been like dying inside mm -hmm. and oh, it makes me happy. Absolutely. There's this demand to be recognized. And again, I'm thinking of that statement again. I know I can feel the one star review coming. Like, why are you yeah. getting political? Uh, hey, we get, we have to. We can't yeah. not talk about okay, this in like this movie. <laughs> yes, and also narcissism. It's just like it was. It is in the zeitgeist because yes. that man was our president. Yes. Exactly. End of story. Yeah. Sorry, and the movie itself true. mentions his name. So yeah. right. And it, just it, it, the movie it is started what it, is. it. Yeah, and we'll definitely talk about that and like why it was done in the in the book and like what was ironic about it come two thousand with the movie. Yep. So there's this demand to be recognized by peers and underlings for their achievements and superiority. Like they need to be recognized for all the good they've done and for their greatness. They will also tend to exaggerate their strengths and their accomplishments in order to impress others. They have an absolute lack of empathy for other people. And as a matter of fact, like kind of look at others as like, how can I exploit them for my own gain? Like, what can I do to better myself on the back of somebody else? Narcissists tend to preoccupy themselves with fantasies of unbridled success in multiple areas of their life, whether it's in business and relationships and like their hobbies and pursuits and financial stature, like they're always fantasizing about how they can achieve more of it, how they can lift themselves up to an eater, even greater level. And since the narcissist believes themselves to be special and superior to others, they feel they can only be understood by those who are like high status or equally as special as they are. They tend to surround themselves with those that they see as influencers and of people that are like, holding positions of authority and great importance overall. The thing about them, like even when the narcissist seeks out the company of their supposed peers, they still demand the love and respect from those they deem beneath them. So they see themselves on a platform, but anyone underneath that, you better love them. They reckon they require like this really excessive admiration from others and this sense of entitlement. Like if you take mm -hmm. one word out of this, like narcissists are just like super entitled. They make unreasonable demands of others and they expect their whims to be catered to without question. They believe they've earned a special treatment. And I would say like it's in this movie in particular, basically when you hear the phrase like they were born on third base, and think they've hit a home run. Mm -hmm. yeah. Relationships are there to take from other people, but they don't expect to give anything back of themselves in return. And they're just very exploitive. And again, that lack of empathy, like they just can't relate to anyone that's not them. They don't really have the slightest care for the thoughts, feelings, or hardships of anyone else around them. In the rare instance when they do acknowledge the struggle of somebody else, they'll do it in a way that basically takes that person's problems and relates it back to their own life or their own quote unquote struggles at that point. Yep. 
finally, they're really envious of others and also believe that others are envious of them. So, you know, like Jen, you're launching a new venture, really Sue, that new blog. And the general, like, because we're friends, like the general response is like, that is awesome. I really can't wait for you to do it. I'm super excited to see what you're going to be writing about. The narcissist response is like, I can't believe they're doing this. Like, you know, why aren't they recognizing me? Why aren't I involved with this? Like, they're just like seething over like the accomplishments of other people and they're devising stories inside of their own head to kind of like how they should be rewarded, how accolades should be put on them instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, So that's- Sounds yeah. so much like my dad, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like this zero-sum game. It's like anything that somebody else gets takes something away from me, and I deserve all the things. Like, this is a stupid thing, but, like, my dad always wanted the big forks. Like, yeah. we had these, the big <laughs> forks and the small forks, and it's like, it was just a known thing that, like, he couldn't, so if there weren't any clean big forks, we had to wash them, you know? And it was just, like, living with that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, because it's not necessarily, like, the admiration like I don't necessarily feel like I experienced it in that way but it was always the I always have to let him like managing his feelings yeah. and like always yes. making him know that he's the most important yeah. person in this family which, which is, is just another side of it yeah. But, and, yeah and that's something you see throughout these especially cluster b personality disorders like perfect word managing someone else's feelings yeah yeah, yeah and it's exhausting yeah. like I mean it's and this maybe will be something we talk about later or in the next episode like if you are committed to change, if you are somebody who has narcissistic tendencies and you're committed to change, you can work on it and improve mm -hmm. it. But like, it takes a, it takes somehow tapping into like the slightest bit of empathy of realizing yeah. that what you're doing is like right. draining everyone around you uh, in order to ever have yeah. a hope of, of getting out of it. And that's yeah. a, yeah. sort of, it's like a, a, a vicious cycle with these personality yeah. disorders because right. the lack of empathy component makes it really hard to yeah. have that realization. Yeah. Well, and like, you can't see that you're not the best, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, why should I have to change anything? Yeah. Because I'm clearly awesome at everything. And so it's just like cracking through that, you know, is so hard. And I remember there was another time where I had, I was not living in my parents' house anymore, but I had just um, had a miscarriage and I, my husband, my first husband was being an asshole, which, and I talked about him in earlier episodes, so I won't go too far into that. But I remember I went to, I was just driving to the gym and I happened to pass my parents' house and I was just like really, really upset. And I went into my house and I saw my mom and I was just like sobbing and like really letting all of this emotion out. And it's just like one of the hard, the hardest times I've ever cried in my life. And my dad came in and he's like, what's wrong? And I was kind of trying to say it. And I said, I said, I am entitled to feel bad about this. I'm entitled to my grief. And he got so upset that I used the word entitled. And he launched into this big lecture about how people are too entitled today. And it's like that lack oh. of empathy. Mm -hmm. And Sorry. that is like, I've talked about that in therapy quite a bit, because yeah. it really like it because I just shut down because the thing is like, when you live with that every single day, you don't see yourself as a person worthy of having those feelings. Mm -hmm. you yep. know? Yeah. You've um, decentered yourself so much to maintain emotional stability that that becomes habitual. Right. right. But, yeah. I read a book called Trapped in the Mirror, which is about adult children of narcissists. And it totally like fucked me up, like in a good right. way. I don't know yeah. if I was quite ready for all those revelations, but it is about just kind of the way seeing yourself I love the title of it seeing yourself as a reflection of another person rather than your mm. own person like really yeah. still dealing with it you know um anyways 
so on. <laughs> I had so I I actually in preparation for this episode because American Psycho deals with like Wall Street Bros. Like I started to look at like narcissism and like in basically American corporate culture in because that's a lot where we talked a little bit I think when we uh, have talked about psychopathy before how there's like a thin line between like the violent psychopath and like the Bernie Madoffs of the world. Like mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. it takes like a certain level of psychopathy to sometimes be successful to that level. So there's been like a number of articles, like can there be positive aspects to narcissism and not like nar- not are there positive aspects of narcissistic, narcissistic personality disorder, but narcissism itself. Like, and let's face it, like we're three people on a Sunday night that are talking about a movie because we think that like people want to hear our thoughts about it. There's a level of yep. narcissism <laughs> that is involved with that, Kim. I have thought about that and talked about it. Follow me on Twitter. <laughs> Follow me on Twitter, everyone. Yeah. And I will say, you know, to our listeners right now, you are damn right. You are super lucky to hear my thoughts on this movie because they're they're <laughs> worth it. They are worth it. Um, shower me Sign with Sign up for our praise. upcoming Patreon. So yeah, we're talking about that in about an hour and a half. Yeah. So <laughs> the thing about narcissists, they're often seen as like highly ambitious. I put almost put highly ambiguous. No, highly ambitious. <laughs> they're driven. They're goal-oriented. Psychopathology at a corporate level is often ruthless. The successful, this is the quote from an article in Psychology Today that I pulled up, where it's like, the successful psychopath runs the boardroom, the unsuccessful one languishes in a jail cell. The thing about like some narcissists, they can see the big picture, they can inspire followers, they push for sweeping changes that move industry forward at times. In 2012, there was a study published in Social Behavior and Personality that hypo- uh, hypothesized that narcissism can be tied to work enjoyment, to like a high drive at work and a high level of work engagement. And this is a quote from the study. Some degree of narcissism may be conceived of, well, well let's try this again. <laughs> I think like I'm pronouncing the word like the way that Lex Luger's old WWF character was pronounced, like when he played the narcissist, I think. Oh, uh, yeah. Like it gets stuck in your head it and is, then you can't yeah. get it. Yeah. Some degree of narcissism may be conceived of as being both healthy and a prerequisite for self-enhancement strategies, self-confidence, and self-assertion. Many people use their workplace as an environment in which to express their ambitions and success in life. Although healthy narcissism may be productive in the work environment, pathological narcissism may be destructive. Behavior at work that is rooted in narcissism is hypothesized to be expressed in ways that are masculine, e.g. being a star performer, or feminine, being subservient to superiors, which I don't quite understand that one, but okay. It has been suggested, yeah, (laughs) it has been suggested that it may be narcissistic tendencies that cause some people to crave rewards and recognition within the workplace. And then there was one last article I pulled up, Narcissistic Leaders, the Incredible Pros and Inevitable Cons. And it talks about like the Jack Welches of the world, the Paul Allens. Oh, I of hate the him world. so yeah. much. Sorry. But they <laughs> created this environment where like people like flocked to them. And the yeah. benefits of them as leaders was they were able to see like the big picture that they were able to draw people to them. There was this real like magnetism about them. 
that mm-hmm. allowed people to kind of want to listen to them overall, but they also like had a lot of weaknesses as leaders as well. Well, yeah, they, I imagine have blind spots because if they, if they surround themselves with yes, yes men, that's how yeah. you end up with like, you know, oops, I made coronavirus happen. Exactly. Or right. Well, there's a sensitivity to criticism is one of the big ones. They're mm-hmm. poor listeners. They don't seek counsel outside their own vision. The lack of empathy leads to risk-taking at the expense of other people. And this from the article, and this is a pretty fascinating read. The article is written by Michael McCovey. So this was an anecdote that he included in the article called The Rise and Fall of a Narcissist. The story of Jan Carlson, the former CEO of Scandinavian airline SAS, is an almost textbook example of how a narcissist's weaknesses can cut short a brilliant career. In the 80s, Carlson's vision of SAS as the business person's airline was widely acclaimed in the business press. Management guru Tom Peters described him as a model leader. In 89, when I first met Carlson and his management team, he compared the ideal organization to the Brazilian soccer team. In principle, there's no fixed roles, only innovative plays. I asked the members of the management team if they agreed with the vision of an empowered frontline. One vice president, a former pilot, answered no. I still believe the best organization is the military, he said. I then asked Carlson for his reaction to that remark. Well, he replied, that may be true if your goal is to shoot your customers, which I think it's a brilliant line. I mean, like, yeah, it's very funny. Come back, yeah. The rejoinder was both witty and dismissive. Clearly, Carlson was not engaging in a serious dialogue with the subordinates nor was he listening to other advisors. Carlson ignored the issue of high costs, even when many observers pointed out SAS couldn't compete without improving productivity. He threw money at expensive acquisitions and made unnecessary investments in Continental Airlines just before it was declared bankrupt. Carlson's story perfectly corroborates the often recorded tendency of narcissists to become overly expansive and hence isolated at the very pinnacle of their success. Seduced by the flattery he received in the international press, Carlson's self-image became so enormously inflated that his feet left the ground, which I guess is good for an airline, but... And (laughs) given his vulnerability to grandiosity, he was propelled by a need to expand his organization rather than develop it. In due course, as Carlson led his company deeper and deeper into losses, he was fired. Now he's a venture capitalist, which, yikes, helping Mm -hmm. budding companies, and SAS has lost its glitter. So I think that was like a really nice kind of the rise and fall of a person that like has a clear vision of what he wants to do, but because he's so caught up in like only my way works, only again, only I can fix it. Yeah. This is really, Mm -hmm. I think, is very intimately tied to the lack of empathy Mm -hmm. And on inability to see things from others' point of view that always leads to the downfall of both narcissists and psychopaths. It just reminds me of like Ted Bundy yep. thinking that he could be his own legal counsel, thinking that he could just get, he got like messier the more kills he did. And it's like, that's what always gets these people caught yep. is that they, they start to think that they're untouchable, yeah. that their ego gets so inflated that yep. they get, you know, they just don't see that they're making it really obvious that they're the one doing these things. And I just think there's a lot of commonality there and I'm very interested in how they overlap and don't. And you think of the, you think of the financial crisis of 2008 and too big to fail. I mean, part of the problem is we prop up these industries 
to an incredible extent where like we are you know well, I mean, we're propping up their narcissism we're feeding mm-hmm. into it over and over again so it's almost hard to blame them in some ways yeah well and it's like like mike you were saying like people are drawn to them mm-hmm. a lot of ways like i there's another key narcissist in my life that i worked with several years ago um but like he knew how to get a lot of attention and like mm-hmm. people liked him and he's very like engaging you know and until he burns you, you know, yeah. until mm-hmm. you get too close or you like slightly piss him off yeah. and then he'll turn on you. And like, I haven't heard from him in a long time, but I imagine he's still doing pretty well. But I know so many people that will never work with him again mm-hmm. because you just you burn out, you know, and it's it's interesting hearing you talk about the positives and the negatives, because I think if you can like and it reminded me of Christian from They Look Like People, like the you are a mountain. Sorry, you have the cutest little I animal know. on your Mike shoulder. Mike has a cat on his shoulder, and my, it's really Aww. cute. My 17-year-old cat, Samwise Wigglebottom. In his, in his old age, he just likes to be cuddled. So he like just kind of climbed up on me and demanded he get snuggled. He wants his bottom wiggled. Well, he's wiggling his bottom at us. And, and he, has, really he has no tail. Oh, a little bobcat. Mm-hmm. He's such a baby. But it's it's funny. Like I feel like a lot of times... Like, either they do see when the downfall is coming, but they can't handle everyone else seeing, so they mm-hmm. just, like, isolate, or they, yeah. like, keep inflating. It's like this this spiral, or you just have to, like, go into yeah. a new field and avoid. But, like, I feel like a lot of times the narcissist is not the one who suffers, or at least realizes that he is yeah. suffering. It's everybody else, you know? And, like, when I think about my dad, like, I couldn't get out of that house, but, like, I could choose not to work with this person anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just... Interesting. And I think that's something that I like I do kind of want to talk about when we see in this movie is like the people that this leaves in the wake, because it like in a lot of ways, it just feels like the storm that you get caught in and you just sometimes you can't see outside of it because you're just so caught up in this like magnetic person's personality, like which I think we see in a certain political party right now that it's Mm -hmm. just and then once you see it, it's like horrific, like all of the things like I'm still kind of unpacking a lot of the things Mm -hmm. that happened when I was working with this person. And I'm like, oh, shit. And watching this movie, like, brought out some of them. And it's like, fuck, that was fucked up. But you can't see it at the time, you know? No. Because there's that veneer. There's that Patrick Bateman smile that's just like, oh, sure, I'll do this blood-stained laundry for you, mm-hmm. you know? You're dreamy. <laughs> so, on that note, let's uh, dig into how we see narcissism in American Psycho. And I think we can all agree Patrick Bateman is a narcissist. Mm-hmm. Yes, he meets the clinical criteria (laughs) yeah and like it's it's one of the things that I love about this movie and I think it's one of the other iconic parts but like that opening when we first meet him when he's talking about his image actually I think we meet him before this but when he's talking about his his morning routine Mm -hmm. and like all of these steps he goes through and he makes sure to say every detail and like he is so obsessed with looking the right way like his image has to be perfect and he's gonna spit and that's his his main focus and I think like there have been times in my life when I've really tried to like look the way I thought I was supposed to like exercise a lot and the thing is it takes a lot of time Mm-hmm. And you really have to cut out a lot of other stuff in your life. And I think that's kind of what we see with him is he doesn't care about anything else. So no. he's willing to give all of this time to just having this perfect image. You know, mm-hmm. I will say I love Les Mis and I liked that poster. So that's <laughs> <laughs> he's got some good taste, although I don't think he really likes Les Mis. What's interesting, what I noticed on this rewatch was when Bateman introduces himself to the audience 
he doesn't give his name first. He gives where he lives first. He describes the building and the location, mm. cueing the audience in like, I live in a very upscale, expensive part of New York City. And then he gives his name. So again, he's he's basically ascribing these characteristics of like wealth and importance onto himself. So the audience knows like, I'm a person that you should respect and admire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he also, I mean, he does things to, I mean, it's like he has written a script for himself and he adheres to it uh, to such an extent that because he's just a shell of a person and like I, we have some notes here about his kind of performative allyship, mm-hmm. you know, where he talks yeah. about uh, anti-Semitism and all these sort of big geopolitical concerns that everyone should have. And I think I think the very first scene, we just see him talking at that table and it's like he actually seems like the most reasonable one of the bunch of these assholes, you know, obviously not in a vacuum, only in comparison to these other assholes. but he everything he does is to craft this image that he is this educated aware polished fit guy with the best business card mm-hmm. no one else could have a better business card you know but it, it's it's when we start to see him in com- comparing himself to other people mm-hmm. that the, we see the cracks it's like with the business card thing as an example it's like if he doesn't have the very best one on the very best card, card stock with the very glossiest font mm-hmm. like his whole sense of self crumbles, which is both hilarious and so deeply yeah. pathetic. Right. It's the closest thing we've ever seen in a mainstream film to both like a dick measuring contest and a castration in a, yeah. in a scene. <laughs> it's really something to behold. Well, you, you measure it and then you lop it off. Yep. Yeah, you got to be careful. Well, apparently, <laughs> like one of the fun facts I found was like they, they did um, sound effects of swords being unsheathed when they would like <laughs> flip With out the little... business cards. That's so funny. Yeah, I know. I, I love and that. I just love how it all plays out. And what I think is interesting, too, is like there is no best business card because that's a subjective thing. It's just what some people prefer. And one of the first things he says is not his is better than mine. It's I can't believe Bryce prefers his card mm-hmm. to theirs. So it's like there's a lot of like pleasing, too. And and it just so happens that he's in this culture where there, I think, are very clear cut this is the best and this is not. But it would be interesting to see him in an environment where like he was really kind of fighting for this crowd rather than that crowd, you know? Yeah. And the other thing that I think is, is funny there is that to me, I mean, to, I think anyone that's not obsessed with business cards, they almost look identical to each other. There's only one that has like the gold lettering that looked any different to me. So it's just, it's all just so insular. And so not grounded in anything that Mm. of of any substance it's just completely insane well apparently the word acquisitions is misspelled on all of the cards too (laughs) like there's no you i'm mad i didn't clock that i i only did because i was um i was looking at imdb facts but then i think that too like that's interesting that like they wouldn't notice that they would notice the font or they would notice like the watermark or something because it's just the appearance it's not the substance you know Mm -hmm. I do like, as a side note, when he says murders and executions and everybody just hears mergers and acquisitions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and that's like another thing that I want to talk about is that nobody is listening. Nobody mm-hmm. knows who any, and that's one of the things I think is so interesting about this movie is the ending. And I don't really remember how the book ends, but like it's this ambiguous ending where like, did he really kill all of these people? And I think I choose to read it that he did. Mm-hmm. Um but I mean, like, is he actually Patrick Bateman? Who is Paul Allen? Like, do any of these people exist? Mm-hmm. Do any right. of them actually know anybody? And I think you could easily 
do like it would be interesting to see a story about Bryce. Like what is what's going on inside him? Right. Although I don't think he's killing I mean, people. There but... is so much misdirection in this movie. There's so much many cases of like mistaken identity. And it's very deliberate. I mean, it's what Heron's going for. Every male in this movie is basically interchangeable with one another. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. Like, you, and you could have like a queer reading of this movie where like you could say that Patrick Bateman is in love with Paul Allen and wants mm-hmm. to possess him. Like, you can, the Christmas party scene is where that really jumped out to me, where he's so, there's nothing with him and he's with Evelyn because it's expected of him to be with someone mm-hmm. like Evelyn. But he completely lights up when like Paul Allen walks into the room and when Paul Allen corrects him or not sorry when he like misnames him like he doesn't even think to correct him. And then when they go to mm-hmm. like to when they go to dinner together and Allen kind of like admonishes him for like picking that place. It's like there's nobody there. There's no one to, to see and there's no one to be seen by. And just the mm-hmm. fact that they were able to get a table, it's almost like you were able to get a table here. Therefore, it can't be any good. You see Bateman mm-hmm. just absolutely deflate at that point. He's just so mm-hmm. glad that he's not being, he wants to please this guy who he sees as his equal and his peer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of why he has to kill him is because he just like can't tolerate the humiliation. And it's like, well, if you, if you won't, yes. if you won't praise me or see me as your equal, I have to wipe, wipe mm-hmm. you off the face of the earth. No. He also, it's like, has a variety. It's like some, if someone seems to be above him or if someone seems to be below him, he's like treats them with mm-hmm. an equal amount of disdain. Yeah. Yeah. There's, a, I think the a reading of this, I think this is Heron's reading of it. It's like some of the murders occurred, but not all yeah. of them. And I think like it really speaks of the psychopathy of like Bateman that he can't tell at this point that the line between what he is fantasizing about and again, those like delusions of grandeur that he has um, and that kind of like fantasizing into a world where he's above and beyond everybody Mm -hmm. else. He lost the ability to distinguish between his fantasy world and his actual mm-hmm. world at this point. Yeah, I would. I mean, I would say if you read this movie that he does kill the people, then he's a psychopath. And if he doesn't kill the mm-hmm. people, then he's just a, yeah. a very troubled yeah. narcissist. Yeah. You would text to that lore, like, what's the difference between this and, like, say, antisocial personality disorder? Because they pretty much mirror one another. And the, the big difference is with antisocial personality disorders there is that like explicit violence that is often associated with it if you're you know kevin from we need to talk about kevin would probably grow up to be somebody with antisocial personality disorder mm-hmm. usually they have like a conduct disorder or um usually conduct disorder or oppositional defiant disorder when they're young and they tend to have a lot of transgressions with the law. They tend to be much more violent. So yeah, whereas that's that's where you would. And see with that. Bateman, it's almost like I mean, his whole thing is to be a chameleon that he can he can mm-hmm. absolutely blend until the moment that he can't, and it's only when he's really like yeah. hashtag triggered that I mean, the moment to me that what well, it's one of the fun like a very very funny moment to me is when he's like doing his locker room talk with the boys, and he takes it a little too far and brings up like they're all like oh women right they fucking. Yeah. And then he brings up Ed Gein and is like, mm-hmm. oh, put their heads on sticks. And they're all just like, what? And like, right. it's this moment where the mm-hmm. veneer slips just a oh. tiny bit. And he's like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. They saw my real face, you know, which is that I have no face, you know? Right. And I, just, I found that movie. I'm sorry. I found that moment both hilarious and like deeply unsettling. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's just what is 
going through his head and he's completely lost touch that that is not something that people talk about in conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was kind of Googling and I found something um, about malignant narcissism. And I'm not sure if that's like a mm-hmm. technical term or not, but it was talking about kind of how that is kind of blending psychopathy and narcissism. And like when I think about mm-hmm. my dad and that person that I was talking about earlier, like they kind of merge in different directions. Like one of the things they were saying about malignant narcissism, one of the things this article was saying, not just a random person, anyways, (laughs) um, was that like there's an element of plotting and there's an element of manipulation rather than just a lot of these feelings. Then this this person that I worked with, I think definitely like had that. Like my dad is will spout all of this um, like, Infowars bullshit but this other person like he knew all the woke phrases he knows how to make you feel like he cares about you and he knows how to say all of the right things which is like that speech that Patrick is giving it's so like it feels like he could have just memorized it from the news you know or like NPR talking points you know and it's it's not real but that's how they can kind of draw you in because they make you feel like Mm -hmm. they see you and that's that that plotting and manipulation that just gives me the chills you know yeah because it's and i i mean i think that he he even has this line toward the end that he is like in this constant pain that he wants to inflict on others and yeah even if he doesn't kill anyone and we say that the scene where he hires the two sex workers and then beats them with like a wire hanger or whatever is like he's a sexual sadist like on top of that on top of the narcissism if you're just because if you're a a narcissist doesn't necessarily mean you're also a sexual sadist like he has more going on there yeah because it it's like but i think with him it's like a control thing like he needs to you know he needs to prove to himself that he can do anything to anyone and and kind of get away with it and still be this like super hot shot yeah wall street guy it's just very like i think the lines here i think that if you, this is another movie where it's like the picking apart the metaphor versus the actual text of it, because I think that this is an amazing, you know, if you look at the whole shape of it, an amazing metaphor for narcissism and how much mm-hmm. narcissism has poisoned our culture, mm-hmm. you know, and capitalism in general. But if you really start to like diagnose Patrick Bateman, one, you have to determine what's real and what's fake. And then you have to like, there's just, it gets a little messier, right? Cause he's just right. got a lot, a lot going on that is just beyond the bounds of what I would say is just narcissistic personality disorder yeah i remember when i was first i'm writing about this for a chapter and something i'm working on and i remember like watching the movie and the whole time like narcissism narcissism then you get to those last 20 minutes and you're like oh i already have schizophrenia (laughs) right yeah i was thinking especially because we just talked about it i was like this this feels Mm -hmm. like delusion one of the other key components of the malignant narcissism i found was like enjoying inflicting pain on others which i think Mm -hmm. we Mm -hmm. see and like with the scene with the unhoused person that and his poor sweet little dog that just oh god i hate that scene so much it fucking upsets me so much yeah i think they i think they need to have it in there to show you just how ugly he can get right Uh, it's a literal Mm -hmm. kick the trope dog or oh my god kick the dog trope wow that was a (laughs) spoon but another example of like implying without actually showing you know that i'm grateful for but just the way that he he lets this man think that he's gonna help him and he's Mm -hmm. and then just like pulls that away and it's like he he just reminded me of like a cat playing with its food you know just before you know it's like that that feeling of pain that he wants to inflict which is interesting because he Mm -hmm. brings that up at the end and he's like i have this pain inside me i have to spread it to other people Mm -hmm. yeah i uh 
I also would think it's interesting, and I and I have some notes on this here too, is just his complete core of emptiness, which yeah. is something I think that um again is probably closer to psychopathy than but, but but because we're in that same cluster, the cluster B situation, it's it's hard for me as a layperson to really understand the subtleties there. But I mean, I think that his essential emptiness is who the character is right he talks about it constantly like that he you know is i am simply not there um he keeps the job that he hates because he wants to fit in which i read as like he is doing these machinations in order to appear to be a like a fully functioning human and the synopsis i quoted that errol morris saying a maze without a center which is how he described everyone's favorite malignant narcissist, DJT for number 45. This was in an article that we can link in the ringer where he discusses, you know, there was a, he had done an interview with Trump and Trump said his favorite movie was Citizen Kane. And Errol Morris was like, excuse me. And he was like, tell me why though. And uh, it's like, he completely missed the point of the film. The former president said he identified with Charles Foster Kane because all of his problems, quote, came down to the woman he married not because he's a megalomaniac who like dug his own grave. It was the woman's fault, which is like, a, a, mm-hmm. like the whole, that's the whole point of Citizen Kane is like a, a downfall of a narcissist, right? And, um, and so that's when he called Trump, he described Trump as being amazed without a center, which is a phrase that just stuck in my head as I thought mm-hmm. so po- poetic yeah. and accurate. And it just kept coming into my mind as yeah. I was watching this. What's, what's really interesting about that is, I don't know if you've ever watched the Trump analysis of Citizen Kane. No, I I chose not to watch it because every time I see his mouth and face, I puke it all over myself. It's what's fascinating is like there's a point where he talks about how Kane was brought down by his pursuit of material goods over and over. Like he just kept trying to acquire and acquire, and it was never enough for him, and never enough. And he, I think he even points out at one point how far apart the husband and wife were at the dinner table, and how like they're together but not together. And it was like almost like he was having these moments of self-awareness as he was narrating it. It's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's definitely because yeah. I mean I don't recommend watching it, but yeah, I'd say I think the rest of there. I mean, if you you have to do a certain amount of mental gymnastics to to maintain the level of delusion mm-hmm. that you have to live with oh, as, yeah. a, as a total narcissist. And yeah. I think it's just mm-hmm. that that interview, you know, with Trump is such a which I've only read that other interview talking about it. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's just such a like. Oh, it's like the Black Mirror thing. Like, it's just like, you know, or yeah. like, uh, oh, it's too recursive. I'm going to have a freak out. <laughs> but that's <sighs> why a maze without a center is such a perfect way to describe it, because you're always going mm-hmm. through the maze and you never get to an end and you yeah. just spiral mm-hmm. and spiral. And that's also like, it's never going to be enough. There's always going to be another Paul Allen. And I kept thinking like, yes, he's in this Wall Street building, but he's not at the top. And like, how is he OK today no. that he doesn't have the penthouse office? And like, is that? He says at the very end, but inside doesn't matter. It's like it doesn't matter that there is no center to the maze because I am so good at at keeping everything else spinning. But I think like those moments of self-awareness, you see Patrick seeing them at the end, too, because there's a moment where he says, and I don't think I'm going to get away with it this time. It's like mm-hmm. he knows mm-hmm. he just is so good at believing his own bullshit. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a Heron, I think, does something with Bateman where she almost gives him a small level of sympathy. Yeah. Like the audience hears a small measure of it. There's that scene where he and Evelyn are traveling to dinner and he has like his headphones on. He just doesn't want to hear her jabbering yeah. on. Um, because, you know, Evelyn, I mean, 
everyone in this film is a narcissist. Yeah, they all I mean, suck. Like, Evelyn is yeah. not a yeah. Evelyn herself is not a uh, sympathetic character at all. But they're traveling to dinner, and I think it's mentioned like that her dad owns the firm that he works mm-hmm. for. So he's kind of in at that point. And she's like, why don't you just quit this job? Like, we both know you hate this Mm -hmm. job. Like, why do you continue to do it? And he says, I want to fit in. And you can read that a couple different ways. Like, there's that he wants to fit in with this crowd because he sees, like, the materials that they have, like, their wealth, their access to the best restaurants, the best suits. And he wants the best drugs. And he wants to be a part of that. But there's also this like sympathetic reading where he's like, I want to know what it feels like to be a human. Mm-hmm. And this is what human beings do. Mm-hmm. They go to work, they complain about their job and they get in relationships and they go to dinner with friends. And he's like, I'm doing all of these things. Like, why don't I still continue to feel nothing? Yeah, yeah. It, it, level of sadness. Yeah, I was going to say, he is essentially a very sad kind of pathetic fi- figure mm-hmm. because he does understand that something is fundamentally missing about himself Mm -hmm. there's no black box for when the plane goes down that will protect that little shred of himself you know it obviously doesn't excuse any of his actions but yeah but but i think it's a really it's a really interesting portrayal and i had another thought and it's gone it's interesting i noted that headphones thing too it's like he just wants to he's shutting himself out and i think now we read that as like a social cue of like i'm I, I'm not wanting to talk to anybody, but here I think it's clearly like he's the only one listening to headphones and he's listening to them in the car with her, you know? And it reminded me of like my dad, if mm. we were in the room and he was watching TV and we started talking, he just turned the TV up louder and louder and louder until that was mm-hmm. the only thing you could hear in the room. It's just those little yeah. moments. I do a thing and my wife hates it. Like when I'm doing chores on the weekend, I put headphones on and my wife hates that I do that because like, she'll want to talk to you but i'm like this gets me through like you don't understand like this isn't about you like this is about me like listening to a show while i do the dishes and the trash and the cat Mm -hmm. box because i don't want to be doing any of those things on a saturday that's what podcasts are for we are here i'm assuming whoever is listening to this is probably sweeping something driving somewhere folding Mm -hmm. laundry or just doing doing thousands and thousands of crunches whatever it is that they're doing I imagine they're taking notes. Oh uh, yeah, and then taking like, little drawings and going, "Wow, they're they're so they're so great." Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's what that's where I think Mary Heron's like. This is such a well-made film because I feel like we see that that is a trait of his narcissism. That is a way of him isolating himself. It's not just like he just wants to have some alone time, you know, because it fits so well mm-hmm. into the narrative. Because yeah, there's I do that too. Like, there's nothing wrong with Corey and I will be bonking around the kitchen and both have. Have our own little earbuds in and we're listening to different things and it's just like it's part of it's the only answer. way to preserve preserve a relationship in my opinion i think so too. but it's like you can't be in your face all the time or i'll fucking kill you right um, yeah uh, but <laughs> sorry um but, but especially after 20 yeah I mean, especially being in quarantine you got to figure out some ways to cope um, and that's the, that's what I was going to say earlier is that I, I noticed like a lot of the criticism of this movie, especially that was contemporaneous with it, actually like around the year 2000, was that it's shallow, that it's such a vapid, shallow movie that's so unpleasant with unpleasant characters and therefore what is the value of it? And I'm like, that is the point. That's mm-hmm. the whole point of the movie is that this these are empty people and it's, it's satirizing not only uh, 
a, a subset of people in a, in a specific period of time, but it's satirizing the whole culture. So I just feel like that criticism really, really missed the point. And I found it kind of upsetting, but right. it was so dismissive, you know, it's like, well, why would you and I, I, even like, I guess I was watching this like Siskel and Ebert review of Scream, you know, from around the time. And they're like, why would you want to watch a bunch of girls get murdered? Even if it's supposed to be satirical, it's still just watching, co you know, like co-eds get slashed or whatever. And right. No, there's so much more going on there. I, yeah, no. it's, I just find it troublesome. That's so funny because I was just going to mention Scream in connection with this movie because mm -hmm. um, like in that movie, we talked about um, who is the killer at what point, who kills what person. And I think my and my reading is like it, it doesn't matter. And I tend to like like to interpret the movie based on how what I'm bringing to it. And that's like we could go through this movie and decide whether this is real, what is real, what actually happened based on like that when he's in the apartment, like let's logically break this down. But I think it's more interesting to kind of live in that ambiguity and like kind of experience what it would be like to not know what is real or not, because that's the thing. And we said it a little earlier, but like none of these people know each other at all. Like there's these accepted things that they do. And like we said, all the men look the same, but the women really look the same too. Like it's really the hair color that distinguishes them. Like Evelyn and, um, Samantha Mathis I can't even remember her character's name Cecilia I think like they're basically interchangeable you know mm -hmm. it's like this one went with Patrick and this one went with the other dude you know it's just like mm -hmm. they're none of these people are real like he doesn't do any work there you know, mm -hmm. he's just sitting and do, I mean, I would love to have a job where I don't have to do any work, but like, that's part of the maze with no center. Like, what is he actually doing? It's just like building this facade, you know? Mm -hmm. Everyone in this peer group is a vice president. Yeah. Right. It's like, it yeah, says that on the business right? cards too. Yeah. Which yeah. is very, very true of corporate culture. They throw these titles yeah. around oh, and that like, you know, and especially people who are like on the biz dev or account management side of things. It's like their whole job is to be a personality and to be, and to like sell the business, you know, the yeah. image of the business and the brand, you know, it's, a, it's just, it's, I've working within it just to survive, you know, and make, make my paycheck and stuff. I just, find it so bizarre and creepy and I hate yeah. it. <laughs> I, I just finished this book called Nitro, like the rise and fall of WCW wrestling. It's like, it, and it was done from the perspective of not just like when, what went on on screen, but really all the behind the scene things, because like WCW was owned by Ted Turner and it goes through like the merger of like Turner Broadcasting and Time Warner. And then the merger of like Time Warner and, and AOL. And it talks about how, like, when Turner got his new title, once, like, Time Warner and AOL merged, like, he realized he had been pushed out of power just by the title he had been given. He was like, oh, this is where, like, old CEOs, they're basically put out to pasture and mm -hmm. shot. Like, it's a meaningless title that holds no power at that point. Just like so the Queen of it's England. It's just fascinating. Yep. Pretty much, <laughs> yes. With with a little bit less racism. Yeah, just, just yes. I mean, who knows? You really, you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, well, I mean, I mean, like Ted Turner's gone on to do a lot for like um, conservation. No, no, I know. I, <laughs> I was just being cheeky. He's definitely, yes, definitely more useful than the Queen yes, of England. Yes, definitely. So. Yeah, which speaking of this movie, and it's so funny because being in education for a long time, like education has its its flaws and its organizational uh, bullshit too, but the corporate world is like, man, I was not ready to be in this kind yeah. of like the misogyny that's there, like the level of just ladder climbing and just, whoo. 
Anyways. Yeah. Um, well, shall we talk about another one of the big things that I want to talk about in this movie is the way he treats women. Mm-hmm. And that is the thing in the, the book that is so upsetting. Like, it's some of the most horrific violence that I've ever been aware of against women like to the point that I think about some of the stuff in that book and it still like gives me still upsetting but it's like this is when I think about objectification like I think this is like really really clear objectification and it stems from his lack of empathy to the point that he does not see them as real people he sees them as puppets that he can say like he tells them what their names are we don't ever find out what their Mm -hmm. names are and he says and granted, it's shot so well that it is really funny when he's telling them what to do, you know, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. still it's so upsetting because he he's just creating this reality for himself. And these are real human beings that get caught up in this, you know. Right. And, and that's where this like, I think it's tricky, you know, the, like to ride that line. <laughs> wink, wink. Um, <laughs> that is is in that scene in particular is like if a man was directing this movie, I'm not going to say that they definitely would have screwed it up, but like, it would have been much harder. I think, I think that the reason that scene doesn't skeeve me out as much as it could, it skeeves me out for the right reasons. It doesn't skeeve yes. me out because I feel like the director is like jerking it behind the camera. You know, I feel like we are meant to empathize with the women in that mo- that moment and not him mm-hmm. because they're kind of looking at each other. You feel you are very much with them, especially the one he called, I think, does he call her Christy or is her name actually Christy? Yes. yes. He calls, calls her Christy, Christy, but since we don't know yeah. her real name, Christy, we definitely are with her. There's a lot of shots on her face, you know, and like how mm. she's experiencing this. And the the nudity is not gratuitous. It's not like there's a big camera zoom in on the boobies or anything like that. It's just like they are nude at, or partially nude at points, but it's still shot in a way that is as tasteful as you can shoot that. And then and then the um, actual sex is played for comedy because he's looking in his reflection, you know, and yeah. high-fiving himself and stuff. He's posing. Right, and then it's like that, I mean, I was actually very impressed with managing to pull all those things off simultaneously and still make it a really watchable scene. And I, I guess I compare it in my head to something like Game of Thrones, which I actually stopped watching at one point in the, in the series run because they just kept adding more rape scenes. And it was yeah. like, I've read the yeah. books. You just added an additional rape in a series that is already yeah. full of rape. And it's just like the way that that is shot and handled and the way that the the male gaze is is very apparent to me it is just it feels like a female gaze to me yes. or, or a non-gendered gaze to me I should say yeah, yeah. It, at the, it, especially that scene you know it's like the the joke is on Bateman and not on these women yes. and, and it makes it very apparent to you that he is objectifying them and why that's bad when that happens you know right. it, it's doing right. a lot of work and they're only there because he's paying mm-hmm. them be there and when he wants to tell them about himself they're like we're not interested like he's like do you want to hear about what i do they're like no you know they're just very matter of fact and even though even though they're getting paid and you're getting paid for companionship and you think they'd be like sure i'll humor you because you know they're like we're not interested like there's nothing there oh i wonder if he punishes them because that's what i was thinking yeah like is that the moment he decides Mm -hmm. although Mm -hmm. i mean who knows? He was probably going to do that anyway, but yeah. Heron, Heron in an interview with the AV club and Katie Reif, ah, Katie Reif. Um, talks about, she, it was a really good interview and she talks about how the least interesting aspect of the book to her was the violence. Yeah. Like, okay. Like it's very, she said that there was a point where she put it down for a month 
and then came back to it upon its publication. But like what she was able to find is like sift through it and find like the humor in those situations, even the ones who were ultra violent. I didn't even catch the fact that he like tortured those two women upon like the first watch of this movie. Uh, I think the second time like uh, Christy shows up, she's like, I might need surgery mm-hmm. based on what you did to me. Like you hurt me really badly. Which is such like an insidious way to imply that. Yes. Yeah, it was awful. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I love that that all happened off screen. Again, it's like if this was yeah. Game of Thrones or any other like lesser horror movie or something, that would have been shot gratuitously. That would have been the focus of the mm-hmm. scene was whatever violence he inflicted upon them. But instead, it's it's almost like it's it happens completely off screen. But it, the implication yeah. is so it's both more upsetting and less gratuitous. And it's, yeah. it's very clever. I mean, this comes out in 2000. So you're only three years away from like one of the new wave of like splat hat directors maybe being considered and you know imagine americans i would be so on the nose but like imagine after the success of cabin fever Mm. given american psycho i mean he could play patrick bateman and call it like an autobiography yeah i'd really I have oh. feel I have feelings about Eli Roth that are not positive. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, but yeah. same here. <laughs> also, this was made right before 9-11. And there's that one shot where you see mm-hmm. the Twin Towers. And I was like, oh, this movie would have been, I feel like this would have been a very different movie if it was made post 9-11. It's kind of made at this mm-hmm. really interesting moment in time that was able to reflect back on the 80s but not but before Mm -hmm. we went into like torture porn responding to the violence that we knew was happening overseas like you know and that we were guilty of you know and it's it's so i think in some ways it's both it's right in this moment in time at this like Mm -hmm. hinge in history that accurately captures what america's all about and even in the title being american psycho but it was at this perfect moment to reflect on it and i think that it doesn't really get enough credit for that I agree. And I think like I don't want to say that a man couldn't have directed the movie in this way, because I think like the male gaze does Mm -hmm. not have to be necessarily from a man and a female gaze does not necessarily have to be Mm -hmm. from a woman. But Mm -hmm. I think like this is such a clear example of how it could have gone so wrong with a, a, a male gaze because the camera is not exploiting these women. Christian Bale is not Christian Bale. Patrick Bateman is exploiting them. And I think it's so clearly mm-hmm. different, you know, like we, we open mm. the drawer and like, we don't even see him near that. Like we don't see them in the same shot as that. It's just enough to pick that coat hanger up. And mm-hmm. you know, that's, yeah, it's just so chilling. And it reminds me of um, a movie called revenge, which I am fucking obsessed with. And it's mm-hmm. a rape revenge mm-hmm. movie, but like you see a lot of the attack off camera but we still feel the weight of that, especially as women having been in similar situations, you know, like the implication is really what you need. And I feel mm-hmm. like it's it it makes the point of the movie stand out because it's when you're reading the book, it's just really easy to get lost in how horrific it is. And I right. probably put it down mm-hmm. for a while, too. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that this like, like Mike, I think he said that she refined the the content of the book. And I, and yeah. I really think that's I mean, that's what what a true adaptation should do when an adaptation is done Mm -hmm. well, like this is to me. And, you know, the more we talk about it, the more I'm really liking and admiring what she did with Mm -hmm. it. And and, and the more that that dismissive criticism of it pisses me off because there's really a lot, she packed a lot in here and did did so in my opinion, masterfully. And it's, and it's really just beautifully shot. And yeah. 
I mean, there's a reason why this movie makes itself near the top of the list in anyone's like best of horror movies for the 2000s. I mean, there's like a lot of reasons for it. And I think it's really owed to her. And I think it's Genevieve Turner. Oh, yeah, yeah. The script was written Um, by a woman, mm -hmm. too. Right. So I think like they wrote this together and I think they had they like corroborated together in a number of projects. I think the one thing Turner did on her own, like it's a really weird made for cable like B movie, but like together they tend to bring out the best in one Mm -hmm. another. Um, And Heron has done like work like I think she her last film was like Charlie Says, Mm. um, which is on the Manson murders. And it's both like in this movie and and Charlie says like the 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 violence is often when it's seen, it's like seen from the point of the view of like the victim of it. But her work gets more explicit as time goes on. But she found like with this particular film, like it didn't need to be there. Like you could suggest that the violence and that was really all that needed to be done in order for it to be. And, and she saves the vi- like the moments that are violent for these kind of explosive mm. over the top, like so over the top that it becomes absurd. The I mean, the Dewey Lewis scene, which is iconic, oh. the chainsaw scene, also iconic, which is just so funny to have him just those traitors like that really. And like, and you got to give it to Christian Bale for this performance. I mean, just so much going on under the surface and it's uh-huh. it's uh, and and then the <laughs> my, my favorite the whole you know trying to feed uh, the kitten to the atm while, while holding it at gunpoint <laughs> and just when that woman rounds the corner i mean talk about a moment of empathy if you rounded the corner at night and saw that it would be like what the fuck is this <laughs> right yeah. Oh, yeah. it kills me. But that's I mean, what I mean. She she knows how to do that he, to make it funny, and therefore it's not gratuitous because she's blown it so out of proportion. Ah, it's great. Yeah. Well, and Christian Bale like kills this role. Like, not to be make a pun, <laughs> but like, and I have like a lot of mixed feelings about him just as a person. But man, I mean, he yeah. sells this. Like, I know there were a lot of other actors attached. I can't see anyone else doing this. Anyone else being right. willing to like run screaming naked down the hallway in that way where it's still kind Mm -hmm. of funny Mm -hmm. and side note apparently he would just hang out with a sock on his dick while they were shooting that scene red hot chili pepper style right this role made him i know he had done as a child actor like empire of the sun with spielberg he'd been in newsies when he met ellis to, to talk about this role he went in character as bateman to the point where ellis is like dude you're freaking me out like you actually need to stop doing this right now. Karen actually left the project. Oh, she was removed from the project because they thought they were going to get Oliver Stone. And then when she came back to it, she was like, either get me bail or I don't want to do it. And she held out and and got him. What's interesting is like Gloria Simon is one (laughs) of the persons that really derided this book and condemned it for its violence against women. She's Christian Bale's stepmom. Which I think she is, is? Like, really interesting. Yeah. What yes. the fuck? That's um, weird. Okay. I know, isn't that weird? <laughs> I know Bale gets scorned for and criticized for like that incident on Terminator Salvation, yeah. Yeah. where he absolutely blasted. And it was different from what Tom Craig, Tom Cruise did something similar. But it was last maybe year, deserved but it was because, because the, the only yes, time I've ever. The pandemic. Yeah, the only time yeah. I've ever aligned with Tom Cruise on anything. Where <laughs> like... Bale through a fit and a couple things. Number one, I think if I will, cause Terminator salvation is so awful. Mm-hmm. I think I would be very stressed out too. If I were, he's also done things like appeared as Batman 
at children's hospitals for right. kids unannounced, like no press, mm -hmm. no anything. So I do want to say, like, I know, like, we, we tend to like build up celebrities and then we just can't wait to knock yeah. them down yeah. again. And I'm not saying like Christian Bale is this phenomenal. He's a, like all of us, like a, a human person with, with flaws yeah. and horrific fucking abs. I mean, really, this movie. Yeah. Yes. He is, he's also somebody yeah. who really transforms himself for every role that he's yeah. in. And so it's like, he just, he's clearly a very intense motherfucker. Like right. that's where you get this energy from, in, you know, in this role. And like, that's going to be a volatile personality and actors are tend to yeah. be volatile people in general. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you know, yeah. speaking of, narcissism building someone up and tearing them down the one of the movies i was gonna say you know the the female counterpart of this movie is sunset boulevard and i, I wish we could cover it really it's not horror it's kind of mm -hmm. like noir thriller but it's mm -hmm. uh i mean there's a lot in common there that i think they could be in a really interesting dialogue with each other those two movies <laughs> Well, and it's funny that you mentioned Tom Cruise, because I know Tom Cruise is one of the inspirations for this character, the way Christian Bale portrayed him. Mm, I can um, see it. Which is interesting, too, because if you watch the Stan miniseries, like Harold Lauder has this picture of Tom Cruise on his mirror, and that's how he's practicing his fake smile, you know, which mm -hmm. I think is just so interesting. And like, Mike, when you were saying like celebrities, we build them up and knock them down. It's like the the industry is presenting this facade, you know, and like really intense people tend to really scare me in, in like when I mm -hmm. meet them or when I see them as being themselves. But like, I watch this movie and I'm like, fuck, this is awesome. Like you killed it because it's like, cause I feel like mm -hmm. there's that emotional distance, but, mm -hmm. but I mean, that is the industry of like, I, draw you in based on like this persona that I'm putting on even though that's mm -hmm. not really who I am and one of the things that I think is so amazing and is he really conveys this vacantness you mm -hmm. know mm -hmm. uh, underneath all of this and man that Huey Lewis scene is awesome and like it is iconic for a reason and I was mm -hmm. thinking about this like the way he like spouts all of that information it's like so practiced you know and it's like this is what I think about mm -hmm. this and it almost feels like the same moment of him like having sex with a girl and flexing in the mirror you know it's like this is his mental flex like this is how I show my value and this is what I think I'm supposed to say here and it's just it's brilliant and I mean I think it was written brilliantly too I just think Mary Heron really yeah. knew how to convey it and to connect those two things mm -hmm. you know right because it, it was fun. It, everything he says about when he talks about music, he talks about it in this way that like a Lester Bangs would talk about like Led Zeppelin, basically. And what you realize is like his tastes are the most. And I like Huey. I think like Huey Lewis has written like a number of like fantastic mm -hmm. pop songs. Um, so don't get me wrong. And really sadly, like Huey Lewis has this disorder now where he can't detect pitch so he can't really sing oh, anymore no. and it's such a cruel punishment yeah it was like an article and like an, and it comes and goes is my understanding like it was an article in esquire a couple years back and it was really kind of like heart-wrenching and he talks about his legacy and but really like he's describing the most pedestrian yes. top 40 mainstream run of and he's ascribing these like characteristics of importance to it and again like because he's a narcissist like because like i love huey lewis so much it must be 
incredible yeah. music. You I, know? I also think like he, he sort of is like trying to say when he is describing these things, like, look, I have depth of emotion because I get so much out of mm-hmm. listening to the greatest love of all, which I do love mm-hmm. Whitney. Don't, you know, I like I, 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 there's, you know, so, but, um, it, but it's just bizarre. He takes everything to a pathological place, you know, where it's just like, dude, mm-hmm. what? And like, but it really is. It's all just part yeah. of this performative thing, you know? Yeah, like this is what humans say when they talk mm-hmm. about music, you know. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is like how many people in the movie in the movie call him a dork to his face, you know. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's interesting to me. I wonder, like, because you could read it as part of his delusion and insecurity, you know. Do they like? Am I cool enough? And I don't know. I think they really just. Mm-hmm. I I like it more as an interpretation of nobody knows anybody, because it is like yeah. more than. Three times, I think somebody like to his face says that Patrick Bateman, he's a loser, you know? Well, I just think that that's like what we're seeing there is the only times that he does stand out is are in very negative ways. When he blends, Mm -hmm. he can kind of get away with it, but he's talked, he's talked such a big game as part of his personality disorder, but really, you know, I think the biggest moment is when the lawyer at the end doesn't recognize him because he's never interacted with him in person. And Mm -hmm. he's like, Oh, Oh, that was a really funny prank call where you pretended to be that loser, Patrick Bateman, you know? And it's just kind of like, I think as the movie goes on, we just see more and more of the cracks again at the beginning, he's presented as the, like one of the boys and and maybe the smartest one at that. But as the movie goes on, it's just little bit by bit is stripped Mm -hmm. away until we see like him for the, the huge fucking loser that he actually is. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually the quote that I wrote down. Like the lawyers, like that was your mistake because like Bateman as a serial killer, the quote is like, Bateman is such a dork, such a boring, spineless, lightweight. And I couldn't help but think because when you look at, I mean, honestly, when you look at Christian Bale in this movie, like he is like the pinnacle of like what you would, when you, he's like an Adonis mm-hmm. in yeah. this movie. Like he's just like breathtakingly mm-hmm. beautiful in this movie. As a fellow beautiful man, I can <laughs> say that and acknowledge game on game, game respects game. <laughs> and I I thought of like where, I started to think of like Ben Hanscom mm-hmm. and it and the transformation that like Ben Hanscom does in King's work to become like, he goes from being like this, you know, really heavy, out of shape, like person that was made fun of to like a very handsome like everybody like women love him men respect him what bateman might have been like at some younger point in his life did he have to like transform himself Mm -hmm. into this but he could you can never really you can change your exterior but unless you're willing to do the work you really can't change your interior like that is just going to be a part of you no matter how many crunches you do to the last scene of texas And I love that detail too, that Mm -hmm. it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that I've taken away from just kind of my experiences with narcissists. And I think it's a a great that the movie kind of points that out is like there, I really just want them to forget that I exist at this point. Like I'm not ever going to try to get like vengeance or like make them understand how they've treated me. Cause I don't Mm -hmm. think they ever will. But now that I'm out of that haze, I just kind of see how sad they are you know and yeah, like okay the, exactly the thing like I I don't want to say I win but like at least I'm not that sad person for the rest of my life yeah you know? they are struggling with something that although makes them an utterly miserable prick to have to interact with like they are they are suffering you know right. they are dealing with something that is going they're going to be their own worst enemy for the rest of their life you know and that's 
that yeah. sucks. <laughs> and if they didn't hurt so many no. people, I could feel a lot of pity for them. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I have I, felt a lot of pity. I said Harold Lauder is the greatest tragedy of the stand for a long time. Like that book where millions of people die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is there anything else we want to talk about with American Psycho and narcissism? I feel like this is one we could really pick apart for oh, God. days because right. it's mm, just so amazing. Like, yeah. I feel like this will be one that we eventually cover in my other show. We do a one-off of it and dive into the non-narcissistic like aspects of it because there's a lot, there's just so much to pick yeah. through. I mean, really like the one thing is that we've touched on it is how much of an indictment it is on the culture of the eighties. This is the flip side of Gordon yep. Gecko and greed is and, and Oliver Stone. And it's funny because Oliver Stone was attached to this movie for a while and I think that this would be much more of like a celebration of this culture if like someone like Oliver Stone was mm -hmm. to get their hands on it. It's an era that I don't think that we've ever truly left. I think we've been able to subvert it in part. And I think we maybe do a better job of being less explicit about these aspects of culture. But I think that we are very much still involved with this. I need to get mine and everybody else can get in the yeah. back. We are reaping the fruits of that poison tree yeah. harder than we've ever reaped oh, yeah. before. You know, I mean, like that get yeah. fuck you got I got mine thing is exactly why coronavirus spread out of control in the United States, mm -hmm. because that is the attitude here, the prevailing attitude, not everyone, yeah. but it is the prevailing attitude. And it's it's just that that rugged individualism bullshit. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, combined with late capitalism is just was just a recipe for disaster. And we were mm -hmm. over the check was overdue. Yeah. Only one other thing I want to mention, which was my, one of my other favorite lines when they're doing coke in the bathroom and the guy in the next stall says, can you keep it down? I'm trying to do drugs. <laughs> I, I just yes. really made me laugh. Yeah. That's all. I like yeah. that moment. We talk about Jean for like yes, one Yes. Minute. Oh, Chloe Sevigny. I love her so much. She's yeah. so good in this. I meant it. Yeah. Mm hmm. And I think you would put a point in like, he's like, she's like the one woman he doesn't yeah. kill. And I think like, she's the only woman that I think can, why she's so drawn to him, not because of his like wealth, not because of his looks, not because of his position. I think she's drawn to him because she's him and her. Like they basically are two very damaged people, yeah. very quiet people and very like insecure people. And she sees that in him in a way that like he, and I think- where he might not be fully cognizant of it, he can kind of recognize himself and her as well, which is why he kind of keeps her around. And you see, like, we talk about negging. Yes. Like, <laughs> like, you know, where he's like, oh, don't wear that. Wear something better, you know, mm -hmm. just like, and you can see, like, he'll build her up and then deflate mm -hmm. her again. And it, it, it hurts to it see. It really it. Like, does. Your heart oh, breaks yeah. her. Just the way she reacts to it is, is just one of the more tragic things, you know, because, like, she... And that's what I mean, like her performance, she's got, she has such limited screen time, but her performance really stuck with me because she just so subtly, like that little bit of insecurity, plus that little bit of flattery, plus the, the ups and downs of this. And it's all happening mm -hmm. in such a small, small scale, like her facial expressions barely change, you know, but it's like so much is conveyed in them. It's just a really wonderful performance. It really is. Yeah. And it really, 
I did want to talk about her, so I'm glad you brought her back up because that's that's like me with my dad and like growing up in our family. And I think part of the reason that he doesn't kill her is she is the one who is actually trying to manage his emotions. You know, she's the one like she gives him that flattery when he's talking about, I, I think, losing weight or something. He's like, no, Patrick, you don't need to lose any weight. And it's so genuine, you mm-hmm. know, and I don't think she really believes it or means it. I think she just knows this is what I say and this is the way that I say it and this is how he's going to believe it. And I mean, I grew up learning all of those tricks, you know, and Mm -hmm. still like Mm -hmm. I have to really stop myself from like trying to flatter people or manage them. But I feel like compared to the two girls, like Christy and Sabrina, AKA, because those are not their names. They're the names he gave her, but like they don't, they're not interested in him at all. And I think she is. And that's maybe why he, he sees that he's going to lose this 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 management of his mm-hmm. his feelings if he kills her. But man, that scene is so tense. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is there's like one other woman in the movie who's genuinely interested in him, and it's the woman he runs into at the laundromat, uh-huh. and he can't get away from her fast enough. And I think like the appeal to her is like she is interested in him because of who she thinks that he mm-hmm. is. But I, I think he knows there's a part of him that knows like the minute he lets someone like that actually get close to him, she'll see that there's like nothing behind that facade and lose interest. Yeah. So he would rather keep her kind of hanging on, but he cannot beat the streets like fast yeah. enough when he runs. Right. Yeah. And it's earlier in the film too. So it sort of adds to this no. idea that he is cool, cool guy that's wanted by lots of people. But by yeah. the end of it, you realize he's really not. Right. Mm-hmm. Gene recognizes like when he makes that reservation to Dorcia, she's and he's like, I'll 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 see you then. And she's like, You never gave them your mm-hmm. name. She's aware enough to go like, hey, that's not not how this yeah. works. There's a moment too when she asks if he's still with Evelyn. And then she said, before you mm-hmm. even answer, she says, no, I know I have no right to ask that. And I was mm-hmm. like, fuck, yes, you do. Mm-hmm. He asked you out. It's okay yeah. for you to ask if you're still engaged, you know? She's incredibly submissive to him at every turn. It's like shades of Mm -hmm. secretary kind of thing, you know, like that would be their dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. The only other thing with with Reese Witherspoon, it's kind of incredible. Like a year before this, she plays Tracy Flick in Election. Mm -hmm. So she plays like a 17-year-old high school senior. Uh And then the next year, she's like a late 20-something I don't know like what her official role would be but she's like it's just so like it's like whiplash yeah. i watched election relatively recently to realize like these movies are only a year apart and it's like before a couple years before legally blonde where you know she absolutely explodes at that mm. point the, you know? the the compliment that i once got that stays with me for the or and like probably will for the rest of my life was you you look like um a 20 something that was cast to play a high school student. Like somebody told me that was, <laughs> and I was like, thank you. And then I just think about it all the time. Um, you look like Luke Perry. Yes, I, can see that, I look like Luke Perry, <laughs> um, but, but I just think it's funny because there, there was that era where they, the people they would cast to play high schoolers are like visibly in their twenties, like well mm-hmm. into their twenties. Um, but whereas like now I think they're starting to cast a little closer to high school age or like people mm-hmm. that look genuinely younger. I think, um, even yeah. just moving from Riverdale to Sabrina, uh, they they <laughs> yeah. started casting younger looking people in that. And I don't know. It's just something I, I I've 
have an eye on in terms of trends. They're going to swing the pendulum in a completely different direction. A <laughs> completely different direction, <laughs> and pretty soon you're going to have like toddlers playing college yeah, students, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's going to be amazing for baby you. <laughs> Well, the one thing that I will say about Reese Witherspoon, and I only will say this because I think it it relates to this movie and this kind of response to narcissism, is she's a Nashville girl. Like she is our hometown hero. Even though I've heard I've heard a lot of varying things about her, and I won't go into that. But she and I dated the same person a long time ago. I thought you were going to say that you dated her, and I was like, really, (laughs) Jen? No, no, no. I mean, and I've never met her, and this person that I dated is a lot older than me, like so, like eight or 10 years older than me. So he was more age appropriate for her. But anyways, so I dated this guy. Um, he's an asshole. I haven't talked to him in 10 years. Like I, he's not a factor in my life, but for, I don't know. Was it Ryan Philippe? It was not Ryan Philippe. <laughs> no, but that is how rumors <laughs> get started. <laughs> no, it was not him. It was a guy named Jason who was the first alcoholic I mm. dated. Hooray. But anyways, I for years hated her because I viewed her mm. as this rival to me, mm. even though neither of us were still dating this guy. And it's because this system that I had been raised in taught me that there was one person that could be close to this power. Like I had to keep like putting people down to raise up. And it's just that, that response to this narcissistic like patriarchy that tells me there can be only one and it has to be me because if it's her, then I'm nothing mm-hmm. because I don't see myself as worthwhile unless I have this status, you know? Right. It's like the way that women are pitted against each other rather exactly. than joining hands to, you know, mm-hmm. be part of the whole proletariat, just fight the system. I'm just saying words now. Okay. No, no, no. Yeah. But you're right. And I've since like yeah. gotten over it and realized that, yeah, she's a person who has great things about her and things I don't love, but like I like yeah. season one of Big Little Lies. You know? And she has lots and lots of money. Yes, she does. So, give hey, me the Reese. money. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Be my friend. Girl power. Give me hey. the money. <laughs> Anyways, but she, I do like her in this movie. I think she's she plays that character yeah. that she plays so well. And yeah, there's really she's not very, anybody that does like it better. You know? Funny. Yes. Yeah. I like the pot belly. Oh, the pig is so cute. He's like a cute little pig. Well, shall we move on? Um, yes. We're going a little long, although, man, this is a big one. It's a big one. It's a big boy. So um, as we're winding down, let's briefly mention any, and we're going to briefly mention, listeners, briefly mention any other mental health topics we see in this movie. We're not going to dive in too deeply, but we just like to mention things when we see them. Um, We've already talked about delusions, but the other thing that I saw is drug abuse in this, prescription and Mm -hmm. um, cocaine also, so. I mean, definitely schizophrenia in that third mm-hmm. act. There's a moment where, like, when the cop car blows up, like, Bateman looks at the gun. Like, even he is like, something's not right yeah, here. Right. You know, so I, I think there's a little bit of that as well, like, the being delusional, having those hallucinations. Yeah, so. yeah. It's a delight for the audience, though. Yes. I imagine <laughs> yeah. terrifying if you saw it play out. Yeah. <laughs> it, I think it screwed audiences up. I think from my understanding, they're like, wait, what? happened like what's real I, what's fantasy in this movie and i think that's that it walks a fine yeah, line yeah so. i think that it may have been a more like praised movie or more commercially successful i mean it was but even more so if it if they hadn't done that but i think that it makes it a more interesting movie in the long run I I, I, but i i like ambiguous endings that's just that's my flavor yeah it's the, the fodder is what i want like i want to talk mm-hmm. about something you know mm-hmm. um all right so other movies that we see narcissism in 
Just in case you have a nightly bloodlust for movies about narcissism, (laughs) here are some more to check out. And at first, I want to say the second movie that we're doing for our narcissism theme, because I don't want anyone screaming, hey, have you forgotten about this one? We are going to be talking about Creep, starring Mark Duplass. I know, I'm so excited. And we're going to mention Creep, too, although the episode, I think, itself is going to focus on Creep. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I see lots of narcissism and creep and I also said The Shining which I know there are a lot of things I don't think narcissism is the first thing I would say about that movie but like I could talk forever about how much I see I think in the movie yeah yeah. I was gonna say I think it's maybe the Jack Nicholson um, Torrance Mm -hmm. there's you know there's certain the the maniacal (laughs) performances yeah not so Mm -hmm. much Um, in the book but yeah the movie yeah yeah Yeah. I would say like the blankness of Bateman I would say like the stepfather mm, with mm-hmm. Terry O'Quinn. Yeah. I think, and that's a movie. I think we're going to get to that this year. And I'm yeah, really, I'm really a little, little teaser. I am really, <laughs> I love that movie. Yeah, I'm so excited. Who am I here? I cannot wait. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I already mentioned Sunset Boulevard, which is in my top five favorite films of all time. Billy Wilder is a brilliant screenwriter and director. Please God watch that movie. Um, and as a side note, as just coincidentally, a movie I watched last night for the bad movie night I do with my friends. Uh, if you want to see a much worse version of American Psycho, that wherein the lead character literally looks at the camera and says, "Oh, do you get it yet? This is literally just American Psycho. Who cares?" and then keeps moving, is uh, and made by an actual female narcissist. Check out, but please do not pay for me you madness by louise linton wife of former treasury secretary steve nunchen that's Uh, how i know that name she is a nightmare of a person it's absolutely insane i literally started screaming at several points while watching it going how is this made and it was made during the trump administration it is absolutely trump era art uh accidental art and it's as much a testament to narcissism as american psycho but without a hint of self-awareness it is the most bananas ass thing i've ever seen it's also really boring and drags but it's just like oh and the and the main male lead in it is a guy that they hired i think specifically because he has like several like sexual assault allegations pending against him like in a classic trumpian move they're like no one else will hire you well come on board and be the romantic lead in my very confusing film Oh, I was just, I'm obsessed with it. it. It's just, it blew my mind. I couldn't believe it happened right before we were going to record this. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> wow. Well, on that note, and now it's time for an uplifting moment. And this is where we share any grounding or coping techniques and any self-care that uh, has been particularly effective for us. Grounding and coping techniques are little tips, tricks, mantras, practices that help us get through tough days and tough moments. And self-care is anything that makes us feel good or feel better. Would anyone care to share something? Sure. So I, it feels like it's that time of year where the weather has gotten nicer and we can spend some more time outside so really quickly i've been able to like this past weekend like take my dog on longer hikes like today my daughter and i like we've let's find a new trail so we found this like there's this trail that basically runs through all of massachusetts and you can get different sections of it so we just did like a part of it today for like an hour and it was just great to see my dog be able to run around after her surgery back in november and like she's just fully up and running and she was like plum tuckered out so that in like every week i've been making soup like homemade soup and it's like a way 
to just relax and also kind of eat super healthy as well. Um, so like super healthy. Super. So this past week was like a homemade fish chowder. And then Ooh. tonight was like a lemon chicken orzo soup. And it's just, it's a way to relax, throw on a show that I like and like cook, you know, spend an hour in the kitchen and then have like a couple days worth of like meals and whatever planned out. And I find it like really easy and relaxing. And I think I've made about eight or nine different kinds in the past like month, month and a half. And it's just been. You're going to have yeah. to send me some of those recipes. Cause I yeah. also love making, I may, I use my, uh, my instant pot and I do the same thing where just cause you can make a shit ton of it and then mm -hmm. have it for like the rest of the week. I should just post yeah. like, there's an article, like there's like an article from Esquire from a couple years ago. It was like 50 soups for like cold weather days. And I've pretty much post like pulled everything from that. So maybe we'll throw that in the show notes. Nice. Yeah. yeah. I love a soup. Yeah. I'm I Jewish and I love a soup. That's super. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll say, yeah, I have a love-hate relationship with this time of year because obviously we have longer mm -hmm. days, which helps with my seasonal affective disorder, um, nicer weather, but also my allergies go fucking apeshit. So I've been just trying to manage that. And on the days where I'm not like freaking out because I'm convinced that I have COVID because my allergies have taken over my body. Um, I have been trying to walk more and like, you know, just exercise a bit more and stay, be a bit more active. I think I got really, really sedentary over the course of this winter um, for a while there, especially when in February, when we had that big snow snap um, and I'm really, really trying to shake it off and just take it one day at a time because we're in such a weird phase of everything of uncertainty with the pandemic and vaccines and will it all make a difference and who knows, uh, so I'm just just trying to trying to live one day at a time well mine it's kind of funny to be talking about it in this episode but i've been watching my so-called life which is <laughs> one of my all-time favorite shows it, it and i love jared leto in it and mm -hmm. like speaking of another person that i have kind of complicated feelings about man he is great in this movie like this yeah. is just perfect role for him like he really makes oh, yeah. that like schmuckness you know and he's mm -hmm. great as jordan catalano too like i think when he finds a role that really meets him, you know, yeah, I yeah. feel like he really, really shines. But man, I just love that show so much. It's funny. Yeah. Um, I used to watch it when I was in high school and I identified with Angela. And now I'm identifying with the parents and like, oh God, <laughs> this is terrifying. But it's just, it's been like a warm blanket. And like, I know the episode so well. And it's been a really, really busy week for me. So to have that to kind of fall back on, it's like, it's like there are the big comforts that sometimes I forget about because I love them so much that they just, I feel like they live on the shelf, you know, and mm -hmm. it's just been a joy to revisit. So that's what's getting us through. We want to hear from you. Do you do you know any narcissists? <laughs> what do you think <laughs> of American Psycho? What's your grounding in self-care or just, you know, what's on your mind? You can answer these questions and more by following us on socials at PsychoAPod. You can also join our Facebook group, the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group, which is a private and moderated space to share things, um, to share about the things that we talk about on the episodes or anything else that's on your mind. And you can email us at psychoapod at gmail.com if you want to share privately. And if you have a spare moment and you want to just feed our narcissism, <laughs> um, <laughs> please leave us a rate and review on iTunes. It really helps other people find the pod and it makes us feel good. 
in a healthy way i think <laughs> yes yes hopefully let us know if it feels unhealthy just exactly let us know. <laughs> if we're making you uncomfortable right now you can let us know just not in the review please anyways please just uh, no don't in the review <laughs> right. only only leave can't good respond. <laughs> right. yeah. and thank you to those who have already left reviews it really does mean a lot to us and our homework question for the week is what is your favorite song from the 80s? So much <laughs> fun music talk in this movie. So tell us. And hey, if you want to like rhapsodize about it for 20 minutes, I yeah. would like type it up. I'd love to see it. Just don't kill us. Like if no. you do it right. while posting images of you in a raincoat, that's that's maybe yeah, if you, weird. If, if you want to record it and say it all in a Bateman voice, though, that would be pretty funny. Oh, that would be fun. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you know what? <laughs> Play around play with that. it. See what happens. Yeah, I would play that back. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and do we want to talk about Patreon here? Let's do it. So, listeners, by the time this goes live, we are going to have a link, which we will put in the show notes, to our Patreon. And the idea Woo-woo! is to have it go... Yes. The idea <laughs> is to have it go live in April. And then... Uh, <laughs> In May, we'll, you know, in May, we're going to start putting the first of our content up there. We'll have a few different tiers um, that are going to be up there. And the idea is like every single one of them will get you bonus content. So yes, we've like kind of like I, I had a bunch of ideas. Jen and Laura have got gone through it and have made some great suggestions. And like we're really, really excited for some of the things that we're going to kind of bring to every, bring to you. And I'll say this yeah. without telling you like what's going to be in them. Like, why is Patreon important? Like, obviously the main show here, like it's always going to be free. You know, we're not yes. going to be shipping to a model where you're like, and you're always going to get more content for free. Like we're not going to, sh- I, I can't foresee ever shifting to a model where there's like four things a month in Patreon and like one thing a month in the free feed. Like that's just like, no. who we are, not I'm... what we want to do. But yeah. Why is it important? Like the amount of work I would say that like Jen in particular puts in, to doing this mm-hmm. show and getting everything organized and lining up guests for comfort horror and doing all the editing and doing all the outlines, um, the amount of research the three of us put in, like to get into like peer reviewed sites. Like we take it really serious. And like, while mm-hmm. the episode is about two to three hours long, typically I would say an easy 10 to 15 hours each goes in more for Jen goes into mm-hmm. producing each episode. And the thing about mm. podcasting, like I started listening to shows in like 04, I think when this medium first came out and it was like the wild west and it was like everything was independent. It felt like college rock in the eighties in some ways, more people <laughs> yeah. could hear it. And what's happened is like, it's really easy to get lost in the shuffle now. Like there was an article in the New York times about a month ago, which literally made me like rage throw a book across the room. Yeah. When they were like, when you talked about celebrities getting involved in podcasts, they're like, and the money is like so great and it's so easy. And it's just <laughs> like, it's really frustrating. I will say this, like the money that you put into this show is going to go into things like us being able to purchase like deluxe editions of movies so that we can get all of the, you know, any documentaries or behind the scenes stuff. I know that like, it'll go into books and research articles and it's a way for us to like continually improve the experience that you get as a listener. If what we do resonates with you in any way, if you, and we've gotten like some amazing messages and we really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. I think that we're worth at least like a cup of coffee a month. I mean, like I know, like I'm going to, 
I'm going to toot our <laughs> horns here in a way that'll make my co-host uncomfortable. But, <laughs> but I toot, toot. but I think that like Mike, you tooted my I'm horns. Tooting the horns. Um, <laughs> it, I should probably get I should probably get consent before I toot. Them. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Right. Um, but but I think that we're really good at what we do. I think that we have a great show. And like, I know, like, I am definitely not guilty of imposter syndrome. Like, I know that, like, <laughs> like you're damn right. This is a great fucking show. And, and I, for one, am like super proud of it. Yeah, I am too. Well, and what I want to say, too, is like the content that we want to provide is is a way for us to kind of connect with listeners mm-hmm. more, the listeners that want to um, kind of engage with us, give you a little bit more of a voice in the show. Mm-hmm. And we understand if this is not something that is within your means right now, like we're, you know, that's nothing about the main feed is going to change. We're still going to give you um, two topic shows a month and two comfort horror shows a month and maybe a bonus when there's five Thursdays mm-hmm. to be coming up soon. But yeah, we just, this is just something that we're excited about. And I, I agree as much as it does make me feel a little comfortable, like uncomfortable. I am proud of what we do yeah. and I am, and I'm grateful Same. for our listeners and like, I'm proud that I feel like we're building a community and, yeah. and we just want to further that, you yeah. know. We, it's really genuinely flattering that anyone wants to listen to no. us babble. So, I mean, like the fact yeah. that the amount of positive feedback we've gotten is genuinely like yeah. blows my mind. It's awesome. I mean, we yeah. got a message that one of our listeners assigned the Kevin episode to their practicum students. So that I saw that. Mind. I was like, what? Oh I'm like, what, what stupid shit did I say <laughs> in that episode? kind of horrible joke did i make yeah some student is like what the fuck is this (laughs) and the whole reason that i wanted to do the show in the first place is to get more people talking about Mm. mental health and i think this is just kind of an extension of us doing that so Mm -hmm. yeah that did blow my mind though yeah i was very flattered by that i mean oh my god yeah so stay tuned for information about that. Um, we'll link it, but I'm going to post the shit mm-hmm. out of this thing. So look for it. Look for it. And, oh, it'll um, be everywhere, no. honey. And the- it will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm um, saying honey a lot because I've been watching a lot of Drag Race. A lot of really obnoxious <laughs> phrases are like working their way in as a result. I'm alone a lot. Carry oh, on. I say honey all the time. I'm surprised <laughs> I haven't called both of yes. y'all honey. But you're from Nashville, so it's allowed. I mean, basically. That's true. Yeah, me, I'm just co-opting drag speak, so <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> uh, well, what's up next for us, aside from everything we just talked about it, that I'm really excited for? I'm also really excited for our next episode. We have a comfort horror episode coming up. We are going to be joined by Jamie Alvey of Morbidly Beautiful, and we are talking about it. Yay! The 2017 it. adaptation, Kid It, It Chapter One, the It with Bill Skarsgård. Um, he's not hot in the movie, but I can just. Mm-hmm. I still think he's kind Alex. of hot. I still think he's kind hot. of hot, even as bit. Pennywise. He can yeah. move. He he's can. Oh, flexible. Woo. Anyway, also I just always see um, Alexander Skarsgård. Anyways, that's <laughs> <laughs> my thirst for that lives in another show. Um, so. <laughs> So make sure to check that out. That's going to be next week. Uh, we are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. You can find us there along with some other great pods by going to consequenceofsound.com. And Mike, where can we find you online? So you can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian over on Twitter. And you can find my other show, The Pod and the Pendulum, along with Lindsay Travis over anywhere you get your podcasts. 
Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, I think Amazon now as well. So look us up. The Pod and the Pendulum is a show where we cover franchises. And I believe um, by the time this comes out, within like a week, our first episode on the Evil Dead franchise will be out, which I'm really excited to cover because those are just such fun, awesome, incredible movies. So it's going to be a groovy time over at the pod. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Laura, what about you? You can find me on Twitter at underalls. That's U-N-G-E-R-A-L-L-S. Uh, much like the pair of tidy whiteies that are so crisply white, they match uh, your, you know, chunky 80s trainers. And you, and you wear these while just doing recreational activities with chainsaws. Yeah. That's at underalls, U-N-D-E-R-L-L-S. So that's where you can find me making dumb, very, 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 very dumb jokes about things. Uh, yes. And um, occasionally on Losers Club and in the past Halloweenies as well. So that's where I'm out and about, folks. Um, and you can find me at Jim Ferratu on all of the stuff. And I, you can also find me on the Losers Club. Wizard of Glass is coming up, which I'm not going to be on, but that's going to be a big thing there. And then I also think there's going to be another episode on Something Wicked This Way Comes as part of kind of like a giving us a little time to read that monster book. Um, so lots, but lots of other exciting things coming up. So make sure you check them out. And I said that I was going to launch my blog on April 1st, and I'm going to do it, damn it. So that should already be out, and I will, again, probably be posting the shit out of that, too. So that is a, a blog about strong female antagonists, the female killers that the world tells us to fear, and should we actually fear them? And, um, yeah, I'll let you check out who I chose for my first one, but she is somebody that I just love dearly, even though she murders a lot of people. Is it Mila um, Kunis, an American psycho too? It is not, but you know what? That <laughs> might be one for future episodes. You should do the Louise Linton character from, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was like, am I going to have enough women to be sustainable? And yes, man, like coming through the woodwork. <laughs> it's like, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of really complex women in the world of horror. So, so look out for that. I'm really excited about it. It's been a long journey of working through feelings to get that out, but I'm excited. Um, hopefully it is out and I actually did it. So it will be. I'm it will be. <laughs> oh, thank you. And that is our episode on American Psycho. Ooh. I knew this was going to be a, a big one. And I'm so happy that we did this. And I'm, I'm proud of this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Please make sure to take care of yourself and take care of each other. And with that, let's sign off because you know what? We got to return some videotapes, right? <laughs> we really do. They're overdue. Yeah, overdue. They are. <laughs> I meant to say that 10 times through the episode and forgot <laughs> until just now. So. Uh, so we came here to chew bubble gum and take care of ourselves. And, and we're, we're all, all, all out of bubble gum. gum.
Consequence Podcast Network.